Well then, let's continue in our worship this morning and open our Bibles together to Daniel chapter 3. We are picking up today where we left off last week. If you remember from last week, what, what did we see? We saw King Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. And he dreamed of this this great image made of gold and silver and, and bronze and iron and all of these things. But it had feet of clay. What we see today is a response to that dream. And a response that leads to the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3, we're going to read the entire chapter. Brethren, this is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits. <clears throat> he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province, <clears throat> excuse me, province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, Live forever, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, Pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? Or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be, known, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army 
to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not, ha- had not, the fire had, not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their hair- heads was not singed, Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree any people, nation, or language speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Bow with me in prayer again. Oh, Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts by your word away from the idols of this world, to set them upon You, the true and living God. We pray that You would create the kind of faith that can quench the power of fire, that we too might stand firm, that we too might persevere to the end, even to death. Oh Father, we pray that You would accomplish Your purposes in us through the declaration, the proclamation, and the reading of Your Word today. We pray through your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, this is one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. My guess is you probably heard it as a child in church, if you grew up in church, or as a teenager in church, you probably heard it as a call to take a stand for your faith, to resist the cultural pressure, to compromise. By and large, I'm sure as you've heard this story before, That the focus of this story and the focus of your thoughts in this story has been on our three heroes. The three heroes and their great faith. There's good reason for this, of course. These three are mentioned in Hebrews 11 as models of the faith for for us to follow, to emulate. But what if I told you that by and large, the focus of this story is not on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What if I told you that rather the focus of this narrative is on Nebuchadnezzar and the nature of his idolatry? The reason I say this is because if we look at things in context, what do we find in chapter 2? The focus of chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What do we find then in chapter 4, the very next chapter? Well, the focus is on another dream that he has and then his humiliation. Chapter 3 then fits right in the middle of this. Even when we read chapter 3, I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's this repeated emphasis on the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up over and over and over again. And then when we get to the climax of the story, it's narrated to us through his eyes. It was Nebuchadnezzar who rose up and said, Oh my goodness, look, it was Nebuchadnezzar who called them out of the flame. His perspective, his reaction to what's going on is central to the narrative. 
In fact, we're actually told very little about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with the exception of their brief statement in verse 16. Why then is this important for us to see? Well, I I point this out because the point of the chapter and the focus of Nebuchadnezzar is that he is depicted here as a kind of antichrist. And his kingdom is depicted, the benefits of his kingdom is is depicted as a kind of anti-kingdom of God. A direct contrast with the God of Israel. With a, a direct contrast with the benefits that God gives his people in the gospel. To state it most plainly, this story is a replay of the Tower of Babel. Alongside the Tower of Babel... The message of that story, the message here, is a story about counterfeits. We have a counterfeit God, we have a counterfeit king, we have a counterfeit kingdom, we have a counterfeit gospel, we have a counterfeit salvation. I use the term counterfeit intentionally. What is a counterfeit? A counterfeit is an imitation of something that is valuable or important. A counterfeit is something that is intentionally and carefully crafted in order to deceive. Thus, it's not likely that you will ever be faced with a 90-foot tall statue of gold and a demand that you bow to it upon pain of death. But when we look and we see the counterfeit nature of everything going on here, I believe you'll see that we face the substance of this very same idolatry each and every day. The message of this chapter is that we live in a world of counterfeits. And oppression and persecution are bound to come to the faithful. But the good news is that such oppression gives us an opportunity to show forth the glory of God. And in contrast to the counterfeit gods of this world and their empty promises, we serve a God who will never leave us or forsake us. We serve a God who will rescue us in the end, even if we are called to endure trial by fire. That's the message of this chapter. I want to point out three counterfeits today, so that fourthly we can contrast it with the genuine. Three counterfeits. First thing we must see is that we're confronted with a counterfeit conversion. A counterfeit conversion. And here I want to recall, I want you to think back again to chapter 2, which we saw last week. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He had a dream that God had given him. In this dream was a giant image, an idol, a statue with a head of gold. And subsequently, Daniel, as God's divine messenger, was sent to Nebuchadnezzar to tell him that you, Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. Well, it's no accident then that chapter 3 begins right here in verse 1 with Nebuchadnezzar making an image of gold. This is his response to the dream. This is indication that the dream hit home with Nebuchadnezzar. This is, of course, showing us that the dream shook him. The message of that dream was your kingdom, your kingship, will not last forever. It will be destroyed by another. And so this is his response, taking measures to counteract that reality. Remember I told you last week, that, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago, that the whole purpose of the wise men in Babylon was to interpret dreams and to, to tell the king uh, what these signs and omens meant so that they could counteract the destruction of his kingdom or any threat to his kingdom? That's what's going on here. In contrast to uh, just an image with a head of gold, now he makes an, an image that is all gold. In contrast to an image that has feet of clay, here he makes an idol with no inherent flaw or weakness. This is a defiant statement that says, no, my kingdom will never end. No, it will not be destroyed by another. 
I'm going to ensure that my glory, that my legacy, that my name lasts forever. You're not going to wipe away a 90-foot statue of gold. The point I'm trying to make is that Nebuchadnezzar here is responding to God's revelation. He's responding to the revelation of God. You know, I say it often, but the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. This is evidence in part that the Word of God never fails to affect the human heart. We need to hear this. We need to understand this. We never walk away from the Word unaffected. We never walk away just just neutral or indifferent to being exposed to God's revelation. It's too powerful for that. Whenever we hear the Word and we do not turn to the living God in faith, an idol of this world will always fill that void in your heart. Always. What we see then here is the nature of those who experience spiritual conviction without spiritual conversion. And I begin this way so that we see that everything else in this story is the fallout of Nebuchadnezzar's resistance to God's Word. Sadly, it's often that some of the greatest enemies of the church, some of the most wicked people in the world, some of the most wicked people I've ever personally met are those who have had some sort of religious experience earlier in life. They're exposed to God's Word. They feel a heavy conviction and they think that conviction means that they are forgiven. Conviction does not mean that you are forgiven. Conviction does not mean that you've been converted. Like a man who looks at his face in the mirror, turns away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Looks like. So those who are hearers of the word and not doers, they deceive themselves. That's what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. He is a dog who has returned to his vomit. He was briefly interrupted by the thunder of God's word, convicting his heart. But as soon as that storm had passed, he kept going merrily on his way, the path of idolatry and unbelief. Everything else is a fallout of Nebuchadnezzar's counterfeit conversion. But secondly, we then see a counterfeit kingdom. A counterfeit kingdom. You're probably all familiar with the mark of the beast in Revelation 666. Six is the number of man. 666 is the symbol, symbolic for the exaltation of man as his own God. Well, it's noteworthy here that in this statue, it's a depiction of man as God, of Nebuchadnezzar as God. It's noteworthy that the number six is repeated twice. It's 60 cubits tall, about 90 feet tall, and it's six cubits wide. It's about nine feet wide. It's also noteworthy that Ezra 6.3 tells us that uh, the second temple was also 60 cubits tall. There's a very subtle suggestion of blasphemy going on here. It's also noteworthy the gold. Where did this gold come from? Well, we know that King David had enriched the temple in Jerusalem with a hundred talents of gold. And we know that the book of Daniel opens with Babylon plundering the temple of all its precious vessels. So, I think it's safe to say that this gold was made from the gold of the temple. I say this because you need to see what I mean by counterfeit. This image is more than just one man's ego running wild. This is an exaltation of humanity. This is an exaltation of human achievement. It's an exaltation of man in the place of God. It's the worship of self. The worship of man. It's not just about man. It's not just about Nebuchadnezzar. If we notice this repetition 
of all of these people groups that gather. If you look there at verse 2, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, uh, and, and the magistrates, and all the officials of all the providences. They, they're gathering here. It's a gathering of the nations. All of the leading officials in the entire empire, which essentially was the whole known world at the time. And then we have in verse 4, we have this herald saying, Oh, peoples and nations and languages, when you hear this music, fall down and worship. Some of these instruments do not come from Babylon. Not from Babylon culture. Not from Babylon language. Some of them actually are Greek words. So when we couple this with this idea of all these peoples coming together, all these officials, all these nations and languages, again, we realize this is a scene depicting the gathering of the nations into one in order to worship the image of a man. We find all the cultural diversity we find unity, we find beautiful music and pomp and show. All of this creates this idea of something of great importance and affirms this, this kingdom identity and uniting the empire together as one. I say all this, brother, because it is a replay of the Tower of Babel. In verse 1, we read that this image was set up in the plain of Dura. Genesis 11.2 also indicates that it's in a plain in Babylon where the Tower of Babel was set up. Just like the Tower of Babel was a defiant attempt to make a, a, a name for man and for mankind's achievement to build a lasting legacy to the glory of man, the same thing is going on here as well. Just like the Tower of Babel, its goal was to unite everyone into one unified kingdom which only God, scattering the peoples throughout the earth, thwarted. Nebuchadnezzar is doing the same as well. It's a replay. It's an escalation of the Tower of Babel. It's an escalation because not only is he trying to reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel, but he's also demanding worship. Look at the end of verse 5. What happens when the music plays? You are to fall down and worship the golden image. One commentator has noted here that with this kind of excessive detailed list of all these instruments and all of this show highlighted again and again, uh, that Daniel is highlighting the kind of mechanistic, mindless, thoughtless behavior of these worshipers. In fact, several commenters note that this is depicted in a comical manner. It's satire. It's so stupid. It's so pathetic. The music plays and people just, they just plop down automatically. Brother, it illustrates what the Bible means when it says that all those who worship idols become like them. Didn't we hear that earlier? To worship at the feet of an idol is to make the worshiper something less than human. They become mindless and thoughtless and lifeless just like the idols they serve. In fact, something similar could be said about Nebuchadnezzar here. Ironically, when people project themselves as something more than human, the less human they actually become. This is a counterfeit kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. It's a kingdom of diversity. It's a kingdom of unity. It's a kingdom of liturgy. It's a kingdom of worship. And I put it all in these terms because I want you to think about the common expression of such things in our day. Right? I don't want you to read this as if, well, I'm thankful we don't, have, we don't live in a world like this. Think about how King Nebuchadnezzar has this urge to, to project his self-love to the world. I'm so awesome. i got to let everybody know that. Isn't our world full of that in our day? The media, Hollywood, social media, advertisement, glorifying human bodies, 
glorifying human beauty, glorifying human achievements, human wisdom. Don't we also live in a society that's obsessed with image? The image that you project by the way you dress. The image that you project with your career and your accomplishments or your your family and how orderly and well put together they are. Or your body or your money or your sexuality or your preferred gender. We're obsessed with image. We're obsessed as well with pomp and show and diversity and beautiful aesthetics. Let me just turn on the Oscars or the Grammys. The Super Bowl halftime show. Watch the latest political rally. It's these liturgies, these cultural liturgies with music and beauty and image and worship and adoration of humanity all around us. But brother, won't you see how dehumanizing these things are? They're dehumanizing. I mean, don't we know that the, the supermodels, the, the influencers, the Instagram celebrities, we know that the image they project is not real, right? You do know that. That their lifestyle isn't real, that it's carefully crafted, that so often it's a beautiful image lacking in substance that is carefully crafted to deceive so that you want their life, so that you want their body, so that you want their money, so that you want their perfect children and their clean home and their obedient pets. (laughs) The result of this kind of culture, the result of this kind of kingdom, the result of this kind of image worship is dehumanizing. People cease to be fully human. They become just models on display for our public consumption. And the worshipers themselves live vicariously through them as mindless, lifeless robots just following in their train, just like when the music plays, plop, fall on my face and worship this thing that I created. I also can help just how political correctness operates in our day as well. You know, there's just some things in our culture that you just don't question, right? There's just some phrases that you just don't say. You hear the music, you fall down. You don't give thought to it. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. But, brethren, you need to know that, look, a, a trans... People know. Let me put it this way. Our culture knows, everybody knows, that a transgender woman is really a man. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that the homosexual lifestyle is inherently toxic, destructive, and unnatural. Everybody knows that the sexual revolution has brought nothing but heartache and despair and broken homes and destruction. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that abortion is nothing but premeditated murder upon the most innocent and vulnerable of our society. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that money and possessions and popularity don't bring happiness, they don't last. It's all a show. You got lots of money, you got lots of friends. That's how it works. It doesn't last. Everybody knows that the government can't fix our problems no matter how much money we throw at the solution, no matter who we elect to office. Everybody knows these things, but you better fall in line. When the music plays, fall down. Don't question the science. Don't question the experts. Don't verbally assault the, uh, the insecure. Fall down and worship. And if you don't, thankfully, we, won't, we don't live in a day where we might be thrown into a furnace, but we do live in a day where if you don't fall down and worship and conform to the status quo, ridicule, mockery, and cancellation are what awaits you. Brother and I, I go there this morning because I want you to see that this is secular society to a T. Right here. It's a counterfeit kingdom. 
It's acting as if it's God's kingdom. It boasts promises and benefits of the good life in this kingdom. But in the end, it is dehumanizing. It's the worship of man. And just like Adam fell in the garden and the Tower of Babel came to ruin, this kingdom will be destroyed and pass away as well. Thirdly, naturally following this, we see a counterfeit salvation. A counterfeit salvation. Well, after all of this kingdom and worship, King Nebuchadnezzar's attempt at diversity and unity and a lasting legacy seem to be accomplishing its purpose because the nations have gathered, the procession has begun, the liturgy of worship is playing out, the Tower of Babel is being reversed, the reigning superpower of the world at that time has finally united all of the nations once again, But then, but then, a clog in the machine. The Chaldeans approach the king in verse 8, and they bring to the king's attention that there are three Jews who have not complied. Now, we don't know why Daniel's not here in this chapter. Um, Speculation is maybe he had been sent away on business. Uh, Maybe nobody saw him when he refused to bow down. Uh, We don't know for sure. But the focus is on these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They weren't seeking out martyrdom. They weren't trying to make a big show of their defiance. They were seeking the peace and prosperity of Babylon, but there was a place in which they would not compromise. Somebody saw them. Somebody made this accusation. The Chaldeans came to the king, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were the three that were politically incorrect. These were the three that would not go along with a mindless, lifeless idolatry. These were the three that would have no other gods before the Lord. But I want you to think about this counterfeit salvation that's being offered here as part of this kingdom. Before we turn to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is the law of this kingdom. Do this and you shall live. Bow down. And all will be well. Don't do this and you shall die. The flames of hell, symbolically um, uh, pictured here as the fiery furnace, await you. There are the blessings of this kingdom as well. Do this um, and the unity and the support and the community are with you. We're all in this together, remember? Don't do this and... You're a threat to the public good. You're selfishly disturbing social order. Think of the reward of this kingdom. Do this and enjoy blessed life in the land under the protection and love and favor of this king. Don't do this and you will, of course, burn in hell. Burn in this fiery furnace. There is the God of this kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar himself in the image that he set up. But this really comes out in how he responds when these three stand before him. He gives him a second chance to conform, but I want you to notice verse 15. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before him. He reiterates that conformity is not optional, but notice how he phrases it in verse 15. He says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? You see him setting himself up as God? He's the one who offers salvation in this kingdom. He is the one who saves or condemns. He is the one in whom uh, we uh, uh, all owe allegiance and obedience. He is the one who is to be worshipped. He is the one to have that there, should, there must be no other God before him. The Chaldeans get this. That's why they say in verse 9, O king, you live forever. And that's why they go on to make this accusation very personal. Hey, these Jews pay no attention to you. They're defying you, O king. A counterfeit God, a counterfeit kingdom, a counterfeit salvation. Again, I want you to consider how prominent these things are in our day as well. You know, at the end of the day, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really care about what the Jews believe or do in private. 
That's clear throughout this book. Just as long as outwardly you're conforming when people are watching. Don't talk about your Christianity. Don't bring your faith into the public square. Keep it quiet. Certainly don't proselytize others. Don't disturb the status quo. It's the same thing in our day. Notice as well the salvation of all sinners on earthly um, physical benefits. You will escape the furnace now and continue to live in my kingdom, in this land. You will retain the favor of human approval now so that everyone thinks and speaks well of you. Faith in the government. Isn't that everywhere in our day? Somebody look to the state to save them. They look at politicians and leaders to provide the good life, to solve our problems, to, to save us from the undesirable. The promise of a better and happier and more fulfilling life here and now is always the siren song of the false gods of this world. Whether, whether it's love of self, whether it's the worship of people in power or in popularity, whether it's trust and hope in the government, whether it's craving the crowd's approval, the counterfeit gospel, the counterfeit kingdom, the counterfeit gods are all around us in our day. And the message here is, yes, this is the world we live in, but it's also, don't you know that the godly are always going to stir up the rage of the nations? Because the unity of this idolatrous kingdom must be retained at any cost. Counterfeit conversion leading to a counterfeit kingdom and the offer of a counterfeit salvation. With this in mind then, where do we see the genuine in this story? Where is the true kingdom of God in this this story? Well, fourth and finally... The counterfeit is exposed by the genuine. The counterfeit is exposed by the genuine. We've reached the climax of the story here. It's to that which everything has been building up to. And emerging from this idolatrous mass of people are three who represent the true image of God as opposed to Nebuchadnezzar's counterfeit image of God. These are those who are alive to God, not dead to the idols of this world and like the idols of this world. These are those whose response to God is not to glorify themselves like Nebuchadnezzar, but whether in life or in death, to do all for the glory of God. These are those who, instead of living for this world, have renounced this world and have renounced the idols of this world. And look again at how they respond in verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I think without a doubt, these are some of the boldest Some of the most profound words ever uttered in the face of persecution. We have no need to answer you, O king. We really don't even need to respond. It's not even important because it's not up for debate. And it's not up to you either. We love and serve a God far more powerful than you. And if God so chooses, He will deliver us out of your hand. We haven't even given it a second thought because His power is so much greater than yours. And our God will deliver us from your hand if He so chooses, but even if not, but even if not, we will never bow the knee. Much has been made out of these words and and rightfully so. They give us such a beautiful picture of courage, of genuine faith. These words teach us, brethren, that that true faith does not presume upon God and His will. True faith is not that which claims the answer to our prayers or the outcomes that we desire. 
True faith does not give lip service to God while continuing to trust in our own wisdom and plan. True faith does not mean that we will know and understand or even agree with God's plan for our lives. True faith knows that we are not immune from the troubles and trials and heartaches of living in a fallen world. True faith isn't that which trusts an outcome. True faith is that which trusts a person. And and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here are illustrating how entirely different God is from the idol of Nebuchadnezzar, from the idols of this world. Because, you see, idols of this world, they promise blessing. They promise satisfaction in this life. Instantaneously. And, And at the end of the day, idols are under our control ultimately. Even though there's a play, we are enslaved to them, but ultimately they are what attracts us to them is that they are on, under our control. If we do the right thing, we get the right results. If we follow the right ritual, we say the right words, we say it the, 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 the right amount of times, we pull out our magic trinket or our relic, and, and this mindless, robot-like devotion can exercise a level of control and get that benefit. Idolatry is a name-it-and-claim-it religion. Idolatry is a health and wealth gospel. Idols ultimately are our servants. They, They do our bidding. They are under our command. They are entirely predictable. You can plan out your life. You can make sure you know what tomorrow holds. They cater to our every whim and desire. But not so with the living God of Israel. Faith in God, trust Him. It's not faith in an outcome. It's not faith in a set of circumstances. Faith submits to His will, not our will. It it aims for His glory, not our glory. It rests in His promises, even if we can't see how in the world they'll ever be fulfilled to us. Faith in God awaits the inheritance of the, of the age to come. It's ready to lose all and die to all in this life in order to live in the next. And as expressed by these words, faith in God sees death as far preferable than apostasy. It sees His glory and His honor as far more valuable than our comfort. Thus, even if not, they say, Even if God lets us burn alive, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him. Whether by my life or by my death, I will glorify God with my body. Even though I wish that this cup and I pray that this cup would pass from me, not my will but Thine be done. Brethren, there's a little picture of God's kingdom thriving right in the midst of this idolatrous kingdom. Right in the midst of a literal hell on earth. And what is the outcome then of their faith? If this is true faith expressed, what, how do things play out? What, what can you expect when you place your faith in the living God? Well, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar, again filled, filled with fury, In the original language, the same word image is used here to describe his face. The image of his face changed. It's a subtle way of showing how Nebuchadnezzar has become just like the idol that he created. He's irrational. He's beastly. He's dehumanized. And the the uh, overheated state of the king is now reflected in the overheated state of the furnace. Heated up seven times more than it's usually heated. The king is out of control. He ends up killing his own. That's a, that's a great irony here. Those who obey the king, those who were model citizens of this kingdom, those who trusted in Nebuchadnezzar for their salvation, they throw the three in, they lose their lives in the end. They end up in the pit. All those who follow idols will end up in the eternal flame. The issue now is not whether... Israel's God can keep his servants alive. The the issue now is, can Nebuchadnezzar keep his servants alive? No. He is an idol himself. He cannot deliver. 
At first, it looks as though God has abandoned His servants, but in verse 24, does not protect them from being thrown in the furnace. It's not exactly what we were expecting. We expected them to be saved from the furnace, but they're thrown in, and then all of a sudden, something astonishing. Something so amazing that's narrated to us through the eyes of this tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar suddenly jumps up out of his chair in haste. He seems to be the only one in this story who sees what's going on. He gets a vision of Christ, as it were. This godless pagan man. He looks in in verse 25, and he says, I see four men unbound walking around, and they're not hurt. And I see another with the appearance like the son of the gods. God delivers His people. Not in the way, though, that we might expect. For one thing, it comes through the presence of this fourth person. And whether this is an angel or whether this is a pre-incarnate Christ, we're not told. I tend to think it is a picture of the Christ because of how the Son of Man, the Messiah, plays such a prominent role toward the end of the book. Regardless, it shows us that God descends to be present in the deliverance of His people. That's how salvation comes. Not through them standing firm in and of themselves, but because God is there with them. Another thing we don't expect is that that the deliverance doesn't come from the fire, but through the fire. It illustrates how deliverance comes not through the way of pain, free triumph, but through the way to the cross. God is present with His people. God in Christ share in the sufferings of His people as He was punished in our place. Deliverance comes though even for us in the midst of the flame, not by keeping being kept from it. And it comes through the presence of Christ ultimately. And this all goes back to what we heard earlier. God promises in Isaiah 43.2, When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God never promises to keep the fire far from us. On the contrary, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. But even in this, we're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors because of the promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. Because of the promise that even when He doesn't answer our prayer, Lord, take this thorn in the flesh from me. I've asked You many times. I've visited You in heaven. I've seen the risen Christ. Take the thorn out of my flesh. Christ responds to the Apostle, My grace is sufficient. Even if not, His grace is sufficient. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. And to the godly, that's enough. We're not overcome in the trials because He is with us. I mean, just think about even the three walking around in the flame here. They're walking around. They're depicted as if they're taking a stroll in the garden. They're in the midst of the fire, but it's like they are enjoying a walk with their Savior in the garden because He is there. That's what gives us hope in the midst of difficulty. The presence of God. Not automatic deliverance from it. So with this then, Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile pagan tyrant, the enemy of God's people, once again confesses the name of the true and living God. Verse 26. He commands them to come out of the furnace. And once more, in verse 27, all the representatives of the people, kind of depicting the nations, gather not to bow to an idol, but gather to witness the salvation of God and His people foreshadowing the gathering of the nations at the last day. These three then kind of come out of this furnace as if they're rising from the grave. Kind of resurrection. Their clothing doesn't smell. Their hair was not singed. Death had lost its sting. 
Their salvation was comprehensive. Everything was fully restored and preserved. Counterfeit conversion exposed by the genuine faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Counterfeit kingdom exposed by the spiritual and eternal benefits of God's kingdom. And counterfeit salvation for this life only contrasted with the eternal life and the resurrection of the dead. Life in the presence of God for the faithful. Well, brethren, as we draw this to a conclusion, I want to close just by emphasizing that this episode in the life of Israel is kind of a metaphor for their exile. We heard it from Deuteronomy 4 earlier. Uh, God speaks of Israel's time in Egypt as being in a furnace, a fiery furnace of testing. Life in exile is full of violence and destruction and testing. But the promise here in Daniel 3 is that God gives His people the strength to stand firm in the face of an idol. And God preserves His people and will eventually lead us back to our full inheritance. And the same is true for you and me as well because this life is a life of exile. We all await our heavenly home. We live in this world as if we are in a dangerous furnace, a white-hot crucible that constantly threatens to consume us. But I want you to see how such oppression opens the door for the saints to glorify God before the watching world. And though our life will come, it always comes through the way of the cross for all of God's people, but we don't face that alone. God does not stand far off. He came near in the person of Christ. He keeps coming nearer and nearer to sinful, weak, and desperate people through His indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through His presence with us in this Christian life. And it's through that we know we will persevere to the end. It's through that we will rise from the fiery furnaces of this life and enter our full inheritance. Brethren, this is a message of Daniel chapter 3. Let us receive it in faith. Amen. Let's pray.